Wow, that was a workout. <laughs> that's why Pam was reminded, that's why Pastor Chuck Smith always has a fake microphone that he gives to the kids. All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Our text is verses 15 through 26. The topic, Paul agrees to pay the expenses of four Jewish believers who have taken a vow in order to dispel the rumors that he was antagonistic to the customs of the Jews. The title of our message, Pay Per Vow. It's coming. Just think about it. Acts 21, 15, and after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were able to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Let's pray together. Father, we want to do our best to understand the culture and the times in which these verses take place. Uh, But having said that, Lord, we want to know how they apply to our lives as well. We want to bring them into the context of uh, 2008 and the kind of uh, relationships that we find ourselves in uh, so that we can please you as we seek to serve you, so that we can be used of you to touch others who desperately need to be encouraged, whether they're Christians or unbelievers, Lord, that need to come to know you. Uh, We just want to be used of you and have nothing, Lord, in the way of doing that. And so use this time, Lord, we pray. May it be a spiritual time, a time when your Holy Spirit speaks to us about the love of Jesus Christ for each and every one of us. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Living with the saints above, that will be glory Living with the saints below, well, that's another story. It's an anonymous rhyme. I sometimes wonder if the Apostle Paul didn't write it after this episode in the book of Acts. He and his party arrived at Jerusalem at their own effort and expense to present a financial gift of some substance to the saints who were suffering and struggling during a severe economic crisis. Instead of a hearty thank you, Paul, 
The first recorded words spoken to Paul were in verses 20 and 21 where you read, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. They are zealous for the law. They have been informed about you that you teach all Jews who are among Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Wow. There's nothing like vicious false rumors to make your day. Paul must have felt he'd been punched in the gut. No chance to catch his breath, though, because immediately the elders of the Jerusalem church reveal what qualifies as a cockamamie plan for Paul to participate in a Jewish temple ritual. And just when you think Paul would argue, he agreed. Why would he do such a thing? Well, I think he tells us why in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we read, this is verses 19 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 9, for though I am free from all men... I have made myself a servant to all men that I might win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I become as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem were in the category of being weak. Paul became as weak in order to not stumble them and to perhaps serve them. You don't want to remain a weak, immature Christian, but there is a strength in a mature Christian becoming as weak. I'll organize my thoughts along those lines around two points. Number one, there is a weakness you might choose so that you don't stumble others and number two, there is a weakness you should refuse so you don't shackle others. First of all, there is a weakness you might choose so you don't stumble others. There is a tendency here to want to decide if Paul was right or wrong. All of the commentaries I read uh, spend pages, page after page, trying to determine whether Paul was right or wrong in his decision. That's not what this story is about, and that's not what will minister to us, and we're really not in any position to make that judgment anyway. What this story is about and what will minister to us is to gauge the great lengths Paul was willing to go to in order to not stumble others. Now, by stumble, we mean doing or saying something that becomes an obstacle or a hindrance to another believer in their walk with the Lord. We describe our relationship with Jesus Christ as a walk, as if he is present with us and we're walking along through life. And so if we talk about stumbling, then something has been put in front of us that causes us to fall over that. And, and uh, oftentimes a mature Christian, uh, a Christian who has liberty in some area, some questionable area, but it's not really sinful, they might do something or say something or encourage something in the life of a Christian that doesn't have that same liberty and it becomes something they trip over, something they fall over, something that hinders them in their walk. It's not something that the Lord wants them to be involved with. And so Paul would go to great lengths to not stumble other Christians. So we pick up the story as Paul and his party are on the last leg of their long journey to Jerusalem in verse 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Paul's party by this time, scholars say, included Luke 
Titus, Sopater, Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. They were joined by some of the disciples from Caesarea and this guy with this weird name from Cyprus. Uh, some people pronounce it Mason, some Nason. I think the actual Greek is Nason. So <laughs> apparently his home in Jerusalem was large enough to accommodate all of them upon their arrival. Now really, though we're getting just some filler here as, as to the journey, this is a neat snapshot of the joy that Paul and his party were experiencing. Here they were traveling. Travel was always difficult. He knew that difficulties awaited him in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit had been ministering that chains and and bondage awaited him. And yet you see them picking up Christians along the way. Their plans are being laid for them when they get there. And and it's it's a very joyous time uh, for Paul. And I like the way that God built those into the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You see the same thing in the ministry of Jesus for the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. And I only mention that because a lot of times people think, you know, they're, they're getting a little crusty or, or testy or whatever it is, and they think, you know, I, we've, I just got to get away. And we always think in terms of getting away, quitting what we're doing, taking, you know, time off and, and not having anything to do. If, if, I, if it were me, you know, I would say, well, look, I just, I can't even go to church. I got to get my head together. Well, that would take years, but, uh, you know, and, and so you just split off. What I like about the Bible characters, they, they, God built in their rest during their ministry. They didn't quit what they were doing. They kept what they were doing, and they found this joy along the way. And so I would encourage you to find those moments of joy in your work for the Lord. Uh, you don't need to quit the work. You don't need to uh, you know, cut back on it necessarily. You need to have more fellowship with the Lord and with the Lord's people along the way. Now in verse 17, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now the church at Jerusalem received them gladly. Sounds like some kind of an official reception. The next day there was a board meeting with James and all the elders. Now this James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus and the author of the book of James, which was already in circulation at that time. After the departure of the apostles from Jerusalem, he emerges as the leader of the church at Jerusalem in conjunction with an undisclosed number of elders. Verse 19 says, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. In detail translates to words that indicate Paul went point by point describing in particular his amazing ministry out among the Gentiles. It was everything we've been reading about in the book of Acts, only in greater detail and told with the passion of the person who was actually there and whom God was using uh, to accomplish those things. Paul's talk must have gone on a long time. He concluded, and we read in verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Well, of course they did. How could you not glorify the Lord as Paul recounted what the Lord had done? But it's interesting. Obviously, Paul put it in such a way that the Lord Jesus would get the glory. Uh, And it's a reminder to us not to want to bring glory to ourselves or attention to ourselves or even to others necessarily. Now, most of us don't really have a problem 
you know, try, glorifying ourselves. Uh, I mean, you know, honestly, most Christians, we're not in the business of trying to glorify ourselves, but a lot of times we feel like it's our duty to glorify others and to build them up and to, you know, and I, I think we ought to be careful about that as well. We want the Lord to get the glory. We want people to look at us and say, I can't understand how you are doing this or what God sees in you or how you could accomplish this. You seem plain and ordinary. There's nothing extraordinary about you. How is this even possible? I love that because then God gets the glory. I mean, if you're the most educated, the most articulate, the most, I know it's hard for me because I am the most handsome, but... uh, no, I'm just kidding. I was once. But anyway, uh, no, I mean, if you've got all the things going for you that the world would look at, then people say, well, yeah, I can see how God would use that person. He's articulate. He's, he's, you know, he presents himself well. He's very knowledgeable and all that. I'm not saying God can't use you if you're that person, but I, how much better to just give God the glory and to let him use not many noble, not many wealthy, not many of that and just the average, normal, everyday person who allows the Holy Spirit to minister through them. And so glorify the Lord and let the Lord be glorified. And so in verse 20 goes on, and they said to him, and this is where it it goes kind of sideways, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Scholars estimate that there were anywhere from 25 to 50,000 Jews who had believed on Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. This myriad still kept the rites and rituals of the law of Moses. Among them, rumors had festered for some time that outside of Jerusalem, Paul encouraged Jews who believed on Christ to abandon the law of Moses, abandon the customs of the Jews, and to live like Gentiles. Add to this that it was about 57 AD. It was a time of great political unrest, more than normal. In just about 13 years, Jerusalem, you know, would be destroyed by Titus and the Roman legion because they would rebel against Roman rule. Jews, both believing Jews and non-believing Jews, were unhappy with Gentile rule, and there was a great Jewish patriotism and pride. And so whether you were a Christian Jew or not, there was a pride in being Jewish, and that kind of fostered this bitterness towards Paul in this rumor that he was telling Jews outside of Jerusalem called the Diaspora, Jews of the Diaspora, to abandon their Jewishness and live like Gentiles. Now, regardless the great things God was doing through Paul, the believing Jews in Jerusalem were stumbled by those rumors. And how sad, really, that even great works of God could not be appreciated because they had such a narrow vision of the world. Everything to them was Jerusalem and the temple and the Roman occupation, even though they were Christians, and they weren't really thinking beyond not just the borders of their land, but the borders of history and what God was doing beyond them. They had a very narrow tunnel vision. James and the elders had a plan, verse 22, what then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. 
Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality." Four Jewish believers in Jesus had taken a vow that was prescribed by the law of Moses. The fact that they were to shave their heads at the end of the vow indicated it was a Nazarite vow. Several weeks ago, we looked at the Nazarite vow in some detail, but one of it, uh, it was, you know, it's a vow you took for a, a temporary period of time, and uh, one of the things that you didn't do was shave your head. And so you let your hair and beard grow until the end of the vow, and then you could shave it. Now, the fact that they needed to be purified indicates they had somehow become ritually defiled during the period of the vow. Uh, The easiest way this happened in their culture was that they uh, came in contact with something that was dead, Uh, maybe a dead body. You think, well, that's, you know, how does that happen? Uh, All they had to do was walk over a grave. Uh, A lot of, sometimes graves weren't always clearly marked. Uh, There was a lot of different ways they could come in contact with death, and therefore they would be ritually defiled. They would have to therefore offer sacrifices for their cleansing before they could complete their vow. Add to that that it was not unusual for someone to sponsor you by providing the funds for your sacrifices. And so this was the situation. Paul had come to Jerusalem. There happened to be these four guys who needed to uh, be purified. And so the, uh, James and the elders thought this was a win-win situation, uh, something they could use to uh, make Paul more likable to the Jews who were believers. Now, you see here in verse 25, they did affirm that it wasn't necessary to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Verse 25 is a summary of the church council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, where they decided once and for all that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and that Gentiles need not keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, and that Jews could or couldn't keep the law of Moses up to them. And so nobody was changing their doctrine. They were just trying to deal with rumors. Just when you and I think Paul would rebuke them, we read in verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Paul went along with their plan. Why? What was he thinking? Well, we can't know for sure, but we do know what he's written. And as I pointed out in the introduction, Paul was thinking what he always thought about becoming all things to all men in order to save or to serve them. In this case, he was willing to become as weak in order to win the weak. He would act as a Jew in order to minister to the Jews. Every situation was and is a little different. Even in the book of Acts, we've seen differences. When Paul took Timothy with him to minister among non-believing Jews, he insisted that Timothy be circumcised as an adult. Why? Timothy's mother was Jewish, even though his father was a Greek. And there's no way that Timothy could minister among Jews if, as a half-Jew, he was uncircumcised. No use even going 
if you're going to be uncircumcised. And so Paul said, Timothy, we're going to have to get you circumcised so that you can come along. Otherwise, they're not going to listen to our message. When Jews demanded that Titus, another traveling companion of Paul, be circumcised, Paul refused to allow it. Titus was a Gentile through and through, and the Jews were demanding he be circumcised in order to be saved. But circumcision is not a condition of salvation. You're only saved by grace through faith plus nothing. And so Paul said, no way, Titus, are you going to be circumcised, to which Titus said, thank you. Now, you and I will probably not be in such dramatic situations, but you and I must be aware of and ready to embrace this principle of becoming as weak in order to save or to serve the weak. I hesitate to use any examples because I'm going to offend someone, I'm sure, and you know how sensitive I am to that. Uh, Actually, I am. But uh, I have an example I think we can live with. Christians have different attitudes about the media and our contact with the media. Let's just take television, for example. Some Christians, as soon as you become a Christian, you take your TV out and you get your shotgun because we don't have any problem with guns, uh, and uh, at least not in the Central Valley. Or maybe you get your Kershaw out, I don't know. But, and you blow up your television, we're done with television, it's carnal, it's sinful, no TV. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got Christians who actually work in Hollywood. Is that possible? <laughs> anyway, there, and so you've got two ends of this spectrum, and then we all fit somewhere along that spectrum. Some of us watch TV, some of us watch a little, some watch a lot. There are shows we like, shows we don't like. Hypothetical situation, maybe you're you know, having some Christians over, and you're having fellowship, and you say, hey, why don't we watch X, Y, or Z? And maybe the other person says, nah, I don't really want to watch that. What should you do? Don't watch it. But instead, what do we do sometimes? Oh, it's fine. I watch it all the time. It's great. You'll love it. It's, it's actually got some Christian themes in it, you know, and stuff like that. And, and so, I mean, it's, you know, that, maybe that's never happened to you. It's happened to us. I remember when the kids were little. Um, uh, uh, yes, okay, I can tell this story. When the kids were little, there was a couple in the church, uh, and this was like, you know, 20 years ago, and, and they're not here anymore. And uh, anyway, not because of this, they just moved on. But um, we went over, they wanted us to have dinner at their house. We went over to their house for dinner, and, uh, and then uh, they wanted the kids to watch television, Mary and Jean, while we had, you know, adult discussion. And I was okay with that, uh, except for the particular show they wanted them to watch. And I, I said, ah, we're not really comfortable with that. How about this? And man, it was on. I mean, it was like I threw down. I mean, it was like, what's wrong? Our kids watch this show all the time. That's okay. Man, I bet it's the greatest show since sliced bread. I mean, it's great, but our kids don't watch. What do you mean? I mean, it was like teeth and eyeballs over that. And uh, finally, I think I had to say something like, we're leaving if if you're going to force us to watch, you know, whatever. I don't even remember what it was. It was something bogus. And uh, so anyway, those things happen. They happen, or they happen. So we have to be careful. Now, and, and they're very serious issues to, to a person because you don't know when you're going to really stumble somebody and cause them to backslide and not even walk with the Lord. 
And so take the high ground in those kinds of areas. Become as weak. Don't make a person feel bad because they can't watch your favorite television show. Uh, You know, that kind of a thing. And there's a lot of those areas. It's easier to claim maturity or to demand our rights and privileges, but it is not more spiritual to do so. God forbid we would stumble others needlessly. There is a becoming as weak that you might choose, but secondly, there is a weakness you should refuse so that you don't shackle others. If you are choosing to remain weak rather than to grow, then weakness is not a good thing. The situation in Jerusalem would have been better helped if the weak Jewish believers would have grown to see the big picture rather than to have this narrow vision of who Paul was. And so let's go back just in verses 20 and 21 and see how the leaders of the church at Jerusalem might have acted otherwise to encourage growth rather than enable weakness. Let me read them again. It says, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and then they said to them, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they all are zealous for the law. They've been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. The word informed, they have been informed about you, is a word instructed It's the word we get catechism from, and so it indicates a formal teaching or indoctrination. The teaching was coming from one of two sources. Either James and the elders in Jerusalem were encouraging Jews to continue in the rites and rituals of the law of Moses, or more likely, James and the elders were allowing others to teach Jews to continue. There were teachers called Judaizers who demanded that the Gentiles keep the law and they taught Jews who became believers that they also must go on keeping the law. It's one thing to not stumble others who are weak. It's quite another to allow instruction or a catechism that keeps them in a weakened state. Either way, the leadership at Jerusalem were enabling weakness to continue. Now, the rumor about Paul was that he taught all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and to just basically live as if they were Gentiles, and that just wasn't true. It was a false rumor. You can understand how rumors get started, especially in an age when everything was by verbal communication and all, but this was just false. And someone needed to say to these people, this is false. It's wrong, and here's the truth. And so not only did they allow instruction that was contrary to the truth, but they withheld instruction that would confirm the real truth. It was not good to leave the folks in a weakened state by withholding information. James and the elders had about 20 years to be proactive and reactive. Instead, the situation festered until Paul arrived and they put the entire burden of resolving it on him. Their decision shackled Paul. By that, I don't mean it was their fault that he's going to be bound and imprisoned later in the chapter. Uh, That was going to happen anyway. The Holy Spirit had prophesied in every city that Paul was going to be taken into custody. We're not blaming the church for getting him arrested. I mean something far more serious, that it shackled his ability to minister to the believing Jews in Jerusalem. Think of it. Paul the apostle, 
in, in many people's minds, the greatest living Christian of all time, or at least the, the Christian that we know the most about who we would put on that kind of a pedestal if we were wanting to do that. The one guy in the scripture who says, you be like me because I'm like Christ. That's a big claim to make. Of course, it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we know that it was true. And so this guy, you think he's coming to Jerusalem after a long absence, you know, he once persecuted the church, now he is the champion of the church, you've got to sign him up for a series of meetings. You've got to get him booked for all day and all night. Paul, how long can you preach? How much sleep do you need? How long are you going to be here? Because we need to get this message out. This could perhaps be the most exciting thing that ever happened in the history of the Jerusalem church since the day of Pentecost. Think of the greatest, uh, who, who, if, if you had to pick somebody as the, the, the greatest Christian of our era or the person that you would most like to hear that would get you to a meeting and, and then multiply that times a thousand and that's the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is so thrilling. And so Paul, he may have even wondered how God was going to use him in Jerusalem and then he had the initial meeting where he tells his story and, and all of that, and that seems to go well. And then one day later, instead of meeting with the church with thousands that had gathered, tens of thousands there who were in the city for the Feast of Pentecost, Paul is spending a week with four guys who took a Nazarite vow and paying for their sacrifice and going to the temple so that he can prove to the Jews that he's not such a bad guy after all. I mean, this is insanity. While it reveals a nobleness in Paul, it is a waste of his apostolic gift and a sad, sad loss for the Jerusalem Christians. They needed to have a bigger view of their world and of God's world than they had. I, mean, I can understand I'm a Jew in Jerusalem, I become a Christian, my whole life has been about the law and the rituals and the temple. I want to continue in all of that and be a Christian. Great. Paul would say, great, just as long as you're not teaching people that they must do that to be saved, then that's great. But to have a bigger vision, just say, okay, I'm going to do that, but I understand that Paul is out there doing what I am not doing. He's out there among hostile Jews of the diaspora and among Gentiles who I don't even really want to be around. He's trying to reach them all with this glorious gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's willing to be imprisoned, to be robbed, to be beaten. I, I heard that he was actually killed once, drug out of the city, stoned to death, and raised from the dead. He's taken on magicians and sorcerers. He's casting out demons. He's before rulers. He's being put in jail. I, I respect that. But they didn't. Instead, it was like, well, you might have told somebody that they don't need to be circumcised. So I don't want to hear anything else that you have to say. And so the exhortation to us, of course, if, you know, we can't force weak believers to become strong by flaunting our liberties, it might stumble them. And so we may, in certain circumstances, choose to become as weak. And we need to give ourselves the freedom to do that. What's Gene doing? I think he's becoming as weak 
because he thinks he can reach those people. And so let's just pray about that. At the same time, neither should we ignore teaching the weak the truth or countering false teaching so that they will grow in their knowledge and understanding. You know, sometimes when somebody brings something up to us, we have to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't think you're seeing this just right. I think that there's a bigger world out there. Let's give this person the benefit of the doubt. I'm not out there on that mission field. I don't know what the dangers are, what the stresses are. Uh, I'm not, we see this a lot in um, the world of uh, Christian music. Uh, we've got this, you know, these people that God is using you know, and, and doing a great work, and then they try to cross over into the secular realm. And the problem is, as, as some musicians will say, when they cross over, they don't bring the cross over with them. And they, they become a secular band. Uh, and, and I think sometimes we immediately criticize that. It's like, well, they're blowing it, they're backslidden. There's a, give it time. Let's see what God wants to do with that. You and I are not reaching Bon Jovi. Uh, and I remember our friend Daryl Mansfield years ago who used to come here and, and play harmonica, uh, he, would tell, he told me he, he received some notoriety as a harmonica player. I think he might be the greatest living harmonica player. And uh, Bon Jovi heard about him somehow, and he went up and spent, I don't know, two or three weeks with John Bon Jovi teaching him how to play harmonica and sharing the gospel with him. Dennis Agajani is another good one for this. He's not really crossed over. He's just who he is, and yet he's so phenomenally talented that all the country musicians know who he is, and he ministers to them. And so there is a realm in which that exists. Yes, a lot of people blow it. They just go for the fame and, and fortune, and they, you listen to their songs, and you think, wow, what part of that is about Jesus? Where, where is the cross? But we need to have a bigger vision in those situations and just, hey, let's wait and see. Let's take a wait-and-see attitude because there are people who need to be reached that are never going to live in Hanford. They're certainly not going to live in Riverdale. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Layton, maybe. But, uh, and, and so, you know, and, and we're not going to be able to reach them. They're not going to come to us. Somebody's going to have to go to them. And sometimes it's a mature Christian who has to become as weak without compromising their principles. And so it's a big lesson here. Rather than try to decide whether Paul was right or wrong, there's a real nugget here for us to have a big view and a big heart for the world that God wants to reach using you and I as spirit-filled Christians. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. As always, they are precious, and we have just scratched the surface of them. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is here ministering to each heart, uh, speaking to each one of us, telling us, Lord, how to uh, receive and to apply these things. And so, Lord, we, we want to be those who do have a, a big picture view of things, a large vision of what's happening in the world. We never want to compromise our faith in Jesus Christ. We never want to compromise the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we sometimes have to become as weak and use methods that are different, Lord, then I pray that we would understand one another. And if I'm weak or if I am with someone who's weak, I pray that I would want to bring them up, Lord, to a place of greater maturity, not forcing them to do something that would stumble them, but helping them to see 
in a bigger way what you're doing in the world of men. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together. We'll be here to pray with you after the service if you want to come forward. Tickets are on sale for the Cool Wine Fundraiser over in the bookstore. Not the cafe, but in the bookstore. Bookstore, of course, is open. The cafe is open for your fellowship pleasure. Cold outside, but nice and warm. And you know, What could be better than a cup of European drinking chocolate right now? Oh, man. Okay, anyway. Uh, so God bless and God keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.